Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam, which is where I am currently right now, and it's 11 o'clock at night here. Today, please welcome our guest, Tom Davenport, author of All In on AI. Tom, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, thank you for being on. And I, I, I love this book, especially it's so timely as we're all so interested in AI. So let's start with Tom, you telling us about your professional background. Sure. Well, I was academically trained as a sociologist, and I um, was an academic sociologist for just a couple of years, and I decided I didn't really like um, writing books and articles for maybe five people around the world who might read them. So um, I'd done a lot of statistical computing consulting in college and graduate school. And so I moved into information technology and became a consultant, but then gravitated toward the research side of consulting. So I basically moved back and forth between consulting firms and business schools, I don't know, seven or eight times over the years. But I've been mostly on the business school side for the last 20 and it, did you always want to be a career academic? Uh, yeah, I mean, as soon as I, I I thought sociology was really interesting and I, I thought it would be great to be a professor. At one point, I wanted to be a university president, but then I realized what a lousy job it is. You have to spend all your time raising money and, you know, um, going to cocktail parties. So um, I gave that up. But um, being an academic, particularly the kind of academic life that I have, where you sort of go back and forth between businesses and um, students, uh, has been great. And I learn a lot from the businesses, and I you know, try to share it with the students. I'm in the same position as you. I've been doing this for 19 years, so I feel the same as you do. Uh, why did you write this book? Well, I had written a book um, a number of years ago now, maybe um, close to 20 years ago, maybe 15. Um, now, I guess it was 2007 called Competing on Analytics about companies that were really aggressive in their use of analytics. Um, and at the time, there weren't very many companies that were doing that. It was at the very early stages of the kind of analytics and big data movement. And I found that people really um, enjoy, find it interesting to read about companies that are at the kind of outer edge of this sort of capability. And there wasn't any book like that really about AI. And AI and analytics have some things in common, but some things are different. So, um, but it's basically, you know, looking at companies that are on the on the most aggressive end of using. AI and seeing what difference it makes basically to their businesses and how they go about it. 
When my 85-year-old mom asked me, what is artificial intelligence and how does it work? What should I tell her? Because I am asked that question so she can explain it to her Mahjong group. <laughs> um, yeah, before long, there are going to be, I'm sure, AI versions of Mahjong that she can play against, but she'll never win. That's the sad part. Actually, I guess in Mahjong, my wife has just started playing. And if if you get jokers, you win in Mahjong. If you don't, you lose. But uh, um, artificial intelligence is generally defined as technology that can do um, tasks that previously only human brains could do. Um, it's not a perfect definition because some things that AI does, human brains could never do. Like, I don't know, decide what digital marketing ad you um, want to place on a website within milliseconds based on, you know, the cookies and so on that are on the, the user's computer and I'm doing an auction and so on. Um, humans could never really do that. And um, I think it's probably fair to say, you know, there are a lot of things that human brains can't do that we don't think of as AI anymore, you know, reading um, numbers off a printed check it used to be called AI, but there's this expression that um, once AI really works, nobody thinks of it as AI anymore. So the definition is somewhat problematic, but now the vast majority of AI is about um, predicting things using machine learning, um, predicting whether you'll um, respond to a particular um, ad or marketing offer or whether you'll um, buy at a particular price or whether you will um, uh, you know what what word come next comes next in a sentence or a paragraph that's what generative AI is largely about these days so but um, predicting uh, the future based on past data basically the first chapter asks what does it mean to be AI fueled? So what does it mean and how do you tell if an organization is AI fueled? Yeah, well, these are the companies that have really built their business strategies around AI. So they have a number of attributes. They use AI across their businesses and a lot of different um, functions and business units and so on. They make um, uh, a large commitment to actually putting AI use cases, as they're called, or applications into, into production. Um, some have thousands of production use cases of AI. Um, they um, make a major financial commitment to it. They hire a lot of really smart people to do data science-related um, types of work. They, because they're, um, they don't want to get in trouble from an ethical perspective, they think about the um, ethical dimension of AI and bias and transparency and all those sorts of issues. They have somebody typically in charge of it. So, you know, all the things that would seem logical if you really believe that a resource is very important to your success, they, they put those things in place. How much of an impact didn't AI have on drug development during the pandemic? So, you know, what, what, how much did that um, change the timeline for how quickly they were able to de develop these uh, life-saving drugs for COVID? 
Um, well, you, you hear things about, for example, Moderna um, using AI aggressively, but frankly, um, you know, there was a lot of luck involved. COVID um, came along uh, when most of the development work for these RNA-based drugs at places like Moderna and um, BioNTech that partnered with Pfizer, that work was already done. It had been going on for more than a decade or so. Really, the only thing that AI did was speed things up a bit on the margins, maybe improve the speed of the clinical trials and so on. I mean, if you had to estimate how much did it accelerate the cycle time, I don't know, I'd guess, you know, a month to six months. But um, we were really lucky on COVID vaccines to have most of the drug development work already done. Now, there are a lot of um, pharmaceutical companies now that are thinking that AI will be critical in the future for drug development. And a lot of progress has been made toward um, you know, uh, predicting how proteins fold. That's one of the things that Google DeepMind had done quite successfully with almost every protein that we know about. And People think generative AI can start to predict, you know, just as we're predicting words in a sentence, it can predict what's the next amino acid in a, a protein, uh, what's the next protein in a um, drug molecule, um, but still early days for that. I mean, there are some human trials going on for AI-developed drugs, but we haven't really done much yet. A lot of pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies are betting on it, but um, not we haven't seen the outcome yet. You think that's a, a smart bet, or they're overestimating it? I think it is a smart bet. I mean, I've been um, working. I don't really focus on any particular industry, but I've been working with a number of pharmaceutical companies, and um, there is a feeling um, in that industry that this might be a sort of an existential bet. If you fall behind in this. Um, you won't be able to catch up. And the companies, the startups that do it well are likely to be so expensive that only the really big um, pharma companies, the Pfizer's uh, uh, and the Merck's and so on of the world would be able to afford to, to buy this technology. Um, and so um, a lot of these small to mid-sized pharma companies are afraid they're going to go out of business unless they develop more capabilities quickly. What is a technology called machine learning operations? And please provide some examples from the book, like how this is used by a bank in India and Singapore for customer service. Sure. Well, um, machine learning operations is basically just a technology for keeping track of all your different machine learning models, um, monitoring them to see how well they are performing, and letting you know it's time to retrain them if they're not predicting um, outcomes very effectively anymore. So basically, you know, if you're a bank and you have um, hundreds or thousands of machine learning models, um, you need to know, well, who developed them and what are they supposed to do and what are the primary features or variables that they use to predict and how well are they predicting at any given moment. So um, it's just a, a management tool really for this 
powerful resource of machine learning models and um, uh, the most aggressive companies do it. Now, the interesting sort of contradiction in some banks, they have a um, group of people whose job it is to look at these models. And because there is kind of a human role for it, they've been a bit slow to adopt technology-based approaches to managing their machine learning models. Um, uh, so um, it, I think over time, it will be much cheaper and more effective to use technology for that purpose, but there are some human groups that don't want to, I guess, um, lose their lose their jobs. So um, in the book, we talk about a, a bank called DBS a lot, which certainly makes use of um, machine learning operations tools or ML ops tools. Um, they have um, lots and lots of models in production. But one of the ones that we focused on fairly heavily is one for, um, uh, well, we, we talk about two, one for um, uh, customer operations, sort of chatbot related tools. So in India, they opened up a um, uh, subsidiary called Digibank, which has no branches. It's all an online bank and they want to eliminate the need for you to ever call them in a call center. They try to um, be able to answer, anticipate and answer every question with a with a chatbot. And so in order to do that effectively, they have to have a lot of models and um, they're just very focused on high levels of customer service. The other thing we looked at um, at DBS was um, what they call transaction surveillance. It's preventing fraud and any money laundering and so on. And they're, they're quite good at that too and have um, created a lot of machine learning capabilities managed with ML ops tools to um, make sure that they have high quality transaction surveillance and they don't get a lot of fraud. I hate this chatbots, but uh, that's besides the point. Just hate. Well, they have been bad, but I think they're going to get better very soon. I know we've been hearing that for a long time. Um, you know, everybody I know, when they encounter a chatbot, they start pressing zero or yelling agent yes. on the phone. Yes. <laughs> Um, but I just wrote a piece, um, I put it um, on Forbes yesterday about a, a company that's using generative AI to help with um, uh, chatbot capabilities. And I think that's going to be a big step forward. They're just so good at uh, understanding context and um, the language, um, you know, conversational interface is just so much better than anything we've ever, ever had before. Uh, question from the audience. Is the AI prediction based on predictability of human behavior? If yes, is the AI prediction accurate in all aspects of life or only the basic day-to-day -day stuff like daily services and products? Um, well, yeah, human behavior is probably fairly unpredictable unless you look at it in the aggregate. So um, uh, when we're doing uh, AI models that predict how you respond to a particular marketing offer, that's based maybe on thousands of customers. And so the, the human variability and decision-making sort of averages out and we can usually be pretty accurate in predicting. Sometimes, you know, all of these models are based on past data. Um, sometimes the world changes in ways that 
these models, you know, um, don't really can't really take into account. Like when COVID um, started, um, nobody had predicted the degree to which people would stop buying uh, airline tickets um, or the degree to which they would start buying massive amounts of toilet paper um, to stockpile in their homes. So um, uh, the predictive models quite quickly became obsolete and companies had to um, fall back on, uh, even if they could even find out what was selling, they um, were happy. It was just very difficult to predict consumer behavior in a fast changing environment like you know the pandemic. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, in the book, you write that an organization's AI capabilities and success are driven by leadership, culture, attitudes, and skills. Why is this so? And what companies have the best culture for developing and leveraging AI? Um, yeah, well, we tried to identify some that really stood out. And for me, um, probably the single best in the world that we've encountered is a um, Chinese company called Ping An. Um, and they you know, were a startup in the late 1980s in the insurance industry. Now they're the largest private sector um, company in China with um, several uh, uh, hundred billion dollars in annual revenues, I think between two and 300 billion. Um, they've created these ecosystems in five different areas. Uh, it's still insurance plus banking and healthcare and smart cities and automobile related services. And so um, in every one of those ecosystems, they partner with various um, providers, you know, with doctors, for example, in healthcare, they have a very large network of doctors and pharmacies and so on. And that leads to a vast amount of data then they analyze that data to make better predictions. It makes the products and services they offer better, and you get more customers and then more data from those customers. So it's a great virtuous circle. The um, founder, uh, Peter Ma, from the very beginning was very much oriented to data and is a big um, advocate of all things related to, to data um, in Healthcare alone, they developed this app called Good Doctor, has about 400 million um, uh, users in um, uh, China and Southeast Asia. I don't know if it's in Vietnam yet, but it is in um, Indonesia and Taiwan. And it will recommend um, that you should go to the doctor. It sort of does triage um, whether you need to go or not. Then it will give based on what you say your symptoms are, it will give the doctor a preliminary diagnosis and then it will give a preliminary treatment plan and then it will tell you what's the best way to get the, the drugs to you or the medical devices you need or whatever. And it'll you know, dispatch a, uh, a delivery service if need be. It's just really quite amazing. And you know, in the United States, we get excited when they let us talk to our doctor via Zoom during COVID, but this goes well beyond it. And they have similar advanced services on those in those other ecosystem areas as well. Um, so they have a lot of capabilities, strong leadership, and a big investment in this technology. 
Uh, I was surprised to read when you wrote this book that less than 1% of large companies are AI fueled. How many years will it take until the entire Fortune 500 is AI fueled? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, companies now are mostly experimenting um, with this technology. Um, I think we talked in the book about four four groups based on surveys, and the most aggressive group based on a large survey we called Transformers. I think that was twenty seven percent of the of the survey of large companies around the world, and they have. Um, four to seven or more production applications from which they're getting a lot of value. And as I mentioned, some of these um, AI-fueled companies, the really all-in companies, have thousands. So it takes a while. It takes a lot of investment. Most companies are just not comfortable making that kind of really big bet. Um, in my work on analytics from um, 15 or 20 years ago, at that the time I wrote about um, companies that were really competing on their analytical capabilities, you know, it was a similar kind of 1%. Now in surveys, if you ask people, do you compete on analytics, you get about, I don't know, 40% or so um, among large sophisticated companies. So progress is being made in these areas, but it, it takes a while. Don't you think the companies who aren't doing it and aren't investing in this, especially now because it's starting to be has become pretty much a proven model that um, they're taking a huge risk with their future by not making this investment? Yeah, I do. And you know, as I say, in some industries, I think it's an existential question um, uh, for any, particularly now that we have generative AI, for any company that does content creation for a living, uh, a law firm, a consulting firm or whatever, I think it's um, a life or death sort of issue um, for um, any publishing oriented or journalism oriented um, organization, it's a life or death issue. Um, uh, certainly anybody who handles calls um, for a living, um, uh, whether you're in you know, India or the Philippines or Vietnam or whatever, that industry I think is likely to be totally transformed by these technologies. So, um, um, and we saw in the past that big companies like Walmart that embraced data and analytics um, ended up putting a lot of, you know, mom and pop retailers out of, out of business. And I think we're going to see similar kinds of trends with AI. Um, is there a part of life that AI won't touch, uh, which I believe you probably, which I believe from your writing, that probably isn't the case. It's going to touch everything, right? Um, I, I think it probably will eventually, um, unless um, there is some uh, um, large-scale rejection of the technology for some reason or other. That I can't imagine how that could happen. I remember when I was working with analytics, I thought, well, um, there's some areas that can't be easily predicted. Um, like the fashion industry, for example. But it turns out that there are a lot of things you can do with analytics and AI to predict you know, what fashions are going to be popular. Um, so I think basically every aspect of life is going to be affected. You know, some people describe AI as a general purpose technology like electricity and 
that's affected almost every aspect of life. So I suspect this will this will too. I think it's just another data point because what was the big money management firm that used a, a years ago? Uh, and it almost took the entire stock market down. They had all these Nobel Prize winners and geniuses. Yeah. Long-term uh, capital, long-term yeah. capital management. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if that were the case, everybody would be using it and, and nobody could lose money, right? In the market. Yeah, I mean, certainly there um, are circumstances that um, uh, people don't do a good job. People and AI models don't do a good job of predicting. We saw that in the 2007-2008 financial crisis where all these companies that were creating derivatives and issuing mortgages and not you know, thinking they could predict whether you'd repay your mortgage um, accurately uh, even without verifying your income, it came back to bite them um, and almost brought down the global economy then as well. So, um, you know, I think we, one of the tricky things with AI and automation is um, we have to constantly be saying to ourselves, are there circumstances in which um, these models no longer apply, you know, as has the world changed or could it change in such a way that would make this model no longer effective as a way of, um, of predicting what's going to happen? And you know that's hard to do once a model is in place and it seems to be working pretty well. Um, we just have a tendency to let it ride, I think. And that's gotten us in trouble in the past and I suspect it'll get us in trouble in the future too. Um, a question from the audience, a large portion of answers that currently we get from ChatGDP and Google, Brad, are not accurate. Why is, uh, why is they, why do they like accuracy? And when their answers can replace the advice that people can get from professionals like lawyers and doctors? Yeah, very good question. Um, they are inaccurate because there is a very large amount of inaccurate information in the sources on which those models are trained, specifically the internet or, and data on the internet, content on the internet. So um, uh, I think that some progress is being made in that regard. They say that GPT-4 has substantially lower um, uh, hallucination um, frequency than GPT-3 did. Um, I've worked with a number of companies that are starting to put their own um, data and content into these models. Um, Morgan Stanley is a great example. They just announced this week that they've rolled out a new AI assistant to all their financial advisors, and they were kind enough to sort of tell me a lot about it as it was being developed. And they have um, taken a lot of precautions with the model, even though it's built on top of GPT-4, um, to um, limit the number of hallucinations. And they say, you know, it's very good at that now. They limit the types of uh, prompts that you can put in, and they make sure that the data that they added to it is very high quality and accurate. And um, it, it seems to work out quite well. So I think that will decline as a problem. And I think we'll be able to use these systems for the kinds of purposes that the, the, the question refers to, like providing legal advice and so on. Right now, you have to be quite careful about that. You may have heard about the 
lawyer who got in big trouble for um, doing a legal brief and um, ChatGPT invented a number of legal citations. <laughs> he got in big trouble with the judge. <laughs> yeah, we've heard those um, stories in the past. When putting together an AI project team, what expertise should it be composed of? I imagine not everyone is a programmer or a technologist on this team. Yeah, well, that's that's a changing um, situation. When um, I started working with AI a number of years ago, I wrote an article in Harvard Business Review um, with the guy who eventually became the chief data scientist um, in the in the White House for the U.S. government, the first one. Um, DJ Patil is his name. And uh, we called the article Data Scientist. And one of the editors at, at um, Harvard Business Review wisely added a subtitle, which was Sexiest Job of the 21st Century. Um, and then those data scientists, many of whom were you know, PhDs in highly quantitative fields, the idea was they were going to do everything. They were going to develop the models. They were going to program. They were going to um, get them into production and so on. But it turns out those people are not very good at um, the activities beyond developing the predictive models. Um, you know, you know, we know librarians like books more than people, and computer scientist types like computers more than people, and data scientists like numbers and algorithms more than people. So when it comes to putting these applications into production, we need some other types of roles. Um, and they go by various names. Some companies call them translators. Some people call them um, data product managers. But somebody who's going to handle all the organizational changes, we've also added roles like data engineer to make sure that the data are available and in good shape that these models are drawing from. So it's become actually a fairly complex set of activities to make sure that these models actually get deployed in businesses. There, there was some data suggesting that 87% of data science models never get deployed in a production uh, role. And so that's starting to improve now as we add these new types of capabilities to the teams. You write that a survey of large US corporations have suggested the percentage saying they are data-driven cultures has declined. I expected just the opposite. Why is that and what does it mean? Yeah, it, I think the problem is um, that a lot of people um, are deploying uh, various types of technology in their organizations. They're spending literally, if you calculate it globally, trillions of dollars on technology, but they're not devoting nearly as much effort to um, educating people, uh, improving their skills, um, understanding um, how the business process could be improved, um, how do we need to change the culture of the organization. So we really haven't put much effort into the soft side of all of these technologies. We think that um, just putting the technology in place will be enough for people to use it and um, you know, we, we didn't realize uh, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. <laughs> you have to make it want to drink um, in order to really change the culture in a more data-driven direction. In the book, you give a profile of what an AI-led company looks like. 
give an example of a of the banker who turned around uh, uh, the organization. I guess I think that was the bank in India uh, through the U, uh, through the U.S. of AI. And and could you please talk about that and what we can learn from this? Sure. Yeah. Um, that particular leader is a very impressive fellow named Piyush Gupta, and. Um, I realized he was a little bit unusual. I've done some uh, research at DBS for a number of years and it's spoken there and so on, but I was talking to him for the first time for this book and he started telling me that he got personally involved in redesigning the data strategy of the company. And I said, um, that doesn't sound like a typical CEO related activity. How did that come about? And um, uh, he said, well, you know, I had been at Citibank several years ago and I had um, uh, done a lot of work um, on technology then. He said, I was really leading the technology effort for Asia for Citigroup. And I said, oh, you must have been a protege of John Reed. And he said, oh, yeah, that's exactly right. John Reed, um, for those of you who are not familiar with him, was really the first banker, I think, in the world who realized that banking was a very data and technology intensive industry, or it could be. And Citi was an early leader in the use of various um, of technologies, including the um, automated teller machine. Um, anyway, Piyush Gupta really gets down um, into the details of how AI is being implemented. He sponsored a number of experiments. Some of those didn't work out terribly well. He kept going. He didn't, he didn't um, back away from the technology. He provided money to people to experiment. Then he said, okay, we've experimented long enough. Now we need to start showing economic value. Um, they had some data literacy efforts involving a um, uh, uh, Formula One simulation that um, taught you aspects of machine learning. I thought it was very cute. He said, well, um, I wasn't in the top 10, but I was in the top 100 of that. So, you know, again, not these, not the sort of things that we expect CEOs would do. He's just played a personal leadership role. We give another example in the book of a, a guy named Gitesh Ramamurthy at a much smaller company, but still quite successful, about a billion dollar company called CCC Intelligent Solutions. And he also took a personal interest in the technology. He'd been the chief technology officer before um, he became CEO. And I think you, know, you don't have to have been a technology person, but you do have to get very engaged in what this technology can do and how it might transform your business. And that's obviously easier if you've had some exposure to technology in the in the past. Uh, question from the audience: Where should CEOs of tech startups look to apply ChatGBT to help improve their business, marketing presentations, pitch decks, etc.? Where else? Um, well, um, the I just did a survey sponsored by Amazon Web Services and the MIT Chief Data Officer symposium of uh, where people are using um, generative AI tools. And number one is actually in customer operations, um, customer service and call center um, support, chatbot kinds of things. Um, uh, 
I think number two was kind of individual productivity for anybody who is, you know, developing any kind of content around the organization. I think number three was in um, software development. So um, these tools are really actually quite amazing at writing code, so much so that I think it's probably not going to make a whole lot of sense anymore to, you know, try to train kids in school into uh, to how to program because it can, um, you just tell it what you want and it'll create a program in any language. And if you say, well, no, I've changed my mind. I don't want that in Python. I want it in C++. It'll translate it immediately from Python to C++. So um, I think uh, any startup that's going to use technology would want to use it for that purpose as well. And then, you know, there are all these marketing related applications like creating product descriptions and blog posts and so on. You know, most of them are going to be, I think, quite unexceptional, but they're already unexceptional when they're created by humans in many cases. So they, they won't stand out much. I think that's really scary that all these kids uh, who are going to school to be computer programmers thinking that's a great future, that that uh, which had always taken uh, made significant money and significant intelligence that a whole group of folks are being wiped out. And just like, uh, uh, you know, radiologists or folks who are reading charts in the medical field, they're not needing these folks anymore. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've studied that issue of radiologists and, it may, you know, maybe this is a, there's a broader message here. Um, uh, the radiologists say, yeah, you know, it's true that at some point um, uh, these AI systems will read um, radiological images better than we do and identify, you know, potential uh, disease problems, um, cancer, lesions and so on. Um, but A, now they're about as good as we are, and B, we don't trust them so much. Um, they don't tell you why they think it's cancerous yet, and so um, a number of radiologists are not really using those tools, even though they're available. And C, the radiologists say, we do 19 different things, and reading scans is only one of them. Um, so the general conclusion uh, I wrote a, a paper on this with a radiologist who's at Mass General in Boston, also happens to have a PhD in AI. And our conclusion was um, the only radiologists who are going to lose their jobs to AI are those who refuse to work with AI. But frankly, I think that's going to be true of almost every job. The only marketers, the only journalists, the only um, uh, um, CEOs who are going to lose their jobs will be people who refuse to work with AI. Plus, I'm, I'm told there's a big shortage of radiologists, so um, you, you wouldn't be smart to, to get rid of them. But um, on the programmer thing, yeah, I think it's uh, these transitions are always scary. And I'm writing a new book now on sort of um, citizen development using some of these tools, low-code, no-code, and generative AI, and, and automated machine learning tools. And um, uh, my co-author went to a hackathon in San Francisco uh, just as we were starting to write this book. And he, one of the first people he met, somebody who just graduated from Harvard um, in uh, with a degree in computer science. And he said, um, uh, 
the kid was having a career crisis at age 21. You know, he said, everything I studied can be done by generative AI. What am I supposed to do? Now, I think somebody like that can probably get, still get into advanced software development and so on. But entry-level jobs in that space, in low-level programming capabilities, forget it. AI is going to do it better than humans can. Um, people have been worried about new technology eliminating jobs for at least 150 years. And each time the new technologies created better paying opportunities, even for people without college degrees. I, I think AI is different and not in a good way when it comes to job creation. Why am I wrong about this? Well, I, I wish I could say that you're wrong. I mean, you're wrong about how AI has gone so far. It hasn't really had much of an impact on jobs. Um, uh, it takes, it replaces tasks. It, it performs tasks, not entire jobs, like, you know, I was thinking about radiology. Um, but um, certainly, I think generative AI gives me pause. And, you know, so many jobs involve um, content creation of one form or another. And it's hard to see how, if you're a call center agent or a low-level programmer or something like that, that some people aren't going to lose their jobs um, because of AI. Um, we haven't seen it yet. In general, these transitions take quite a while. You know, there were as many bank tellers in 2015 as there were in 1980, even though in 1980, we didn't have home banking on the internet. We didn't have automated teller machines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, they found other things to do in in um, banks, and uh, you know some of them became digital concierges uh, to help people use home banking and uh, uh, internet banking, and so on. Is that going to happen with AI? I you know I'd love to say. There's nothing to worry about, but I do think that there is reason to be concerned. And what we all have to do is just um, start using this technology to make ourselves as productive and effective as we possibly can. And maybe we'll be more productive than our coworkers and we won't lose our jobs. I hate to say it's going to create a competition between workers, but um, it may do that. And all we can do is try to figure out how we add value to these to these very powerful tools. Uh, you write that a 2018 survey of AI adopters found that 82% expected moderate or substantial job changes. Five years later, that's held true. And what jobs can't be done by AI? What, what jobs can't be done? Um, the toughest jobs are those for which um, things are quite unstructured, you know, um, uh, a CEO's job is pretty unstructured. The information that you get is not highly um, uh, um, similar from day to day. Um, you're facing situations that you've never faced before, and AI is not good at that kind of thing. Now it can certainly give you suggestions and maybe make uh, a CEO more effective and productive, but I think the most um, Automatable jobs are the ones that are the most structured, doing the same thing over and over. Um, those jobs can either be automated or done, the decisions can be made better with AI and 
Um, I don't think that's going to change. So um, try to find a job where, um, you know, you have to really look at the big picture. You look at all, a lot of different types of information in order to make a decision. And it's um, not highly structured data that could be better analyzed by a machine. What countries are leading in AI development? And for those countries that aren't developing their own AI capabilities, will they be at the mercy of the countries that do sort of like what Saudi Arabia can do with oil and Russia has done with gas? I mean, what's going to happen? Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. You know, I'm not a, a global economist by any means, but the countries that are clearly in the lead, there's some debate about who's ahead, are China and the U.S., um, each has certain advantages in the in the use of AI. China benefits from not being as concerned about invasions of privacy and use of personal data and so on. The U.S. is great at venture capital and startups and and so on. Um, uh, and um, U.S. still has an advantage in terms of I think it's universities in terms of producing AI researchers, but many of those are. Um, Chinese and Indian who are now going back to their their home countries. Canada is quite good. The UK is quite good. Um, Singapore is certainly hitting above its weight in this regard. Um, Italy, surprisingly, has some um, quite good um, universities in AI-related areas. Uh, I do think that uh, much of the economies of countries will um, rise or fall on the basis of how good um, their um, companies and um, governments and so on are at using AI effectively. So yes, I, you know, it's the usual situation. Um, the, the rich get richer with these technologies, and I think it will help the U.S. and China get richer, and some smaller, poorer countries are going to be um, uh, made um, less um, successful than even they are today. I think, though, uh, some of these uh, smaller countries, they can even uh, level the playing field. I mean, I'm seeing here in Vietnam, there are a ton of the kids who are becoming very good at using uh, AI and creating businesses around it. I'm working with one now that she's created uh, an AI program to go through legal documents for small to medium-sized law firms. I mean, there's some players that do the big law firms, but those tools are very expensive, and she's developed a cost-effective tool for these uh, smaller companies, along with a couple other really cool products that she's done in the marketing side. Yeah, well, the good news, Mark, is that you do have this democratization of these tools that's starting to happen, and um, and generative AI is contributing to it. You know, you can analyze a data set with machine learning models with a two-line prompt into the, the um, data analysis tool that OpenAI offers. It's called, it used to be called Code Interpreter. Now it's called Advanced Data Analysis. Um, uh, there are low-code, no-code tools. There are automation tools that are really easy, you know, kind of point-and-click interfaces. So that's the good news that if a company, if a country educates its people enough to make them kind of literate with data and comfortable with the use of new technologies, they can really prosper um, with some of these more democratized tools. It, you don't have to 
have a PhD in experimental physics from Caltech or MIT anymore to be good at creating these kinds of models, but you do have to understand how statistics work and you have to be comfortable in embracing new technologies. Are you right that AI should drive new product and service offerings? How so and in what industries do you think will benefit the most? Well, so far it's the industries with a lot of data. So um, uh, I just bought a new electric car. I, I like it a lot. It's called an Ionic 6 from Hyundai. And it is um, full of data as Teslas were. I've had a couple of Teslas already. And the um, uh, car is now <laughs> sending in my driving data and I get a driving report every month now. So um, uh, industries like that, telecom, uh, financial services, they've always had a lot of data. Most of the um, products, for example, with AI, I think have been in financial services, uh, chatbots. Um, Morgan Stanley has a next best action kind of system that they recommend um, uh, new um, investing opportunities to clients. And now they have a new AI assistant that answers um, questions using their, their own best knowledge that they've incorporated into GPT-4. Um, so um, I think financial services will be the most aggressive, but in general, it's the industries that have lots of data that will do the best. Uh, I, I know this is a hard question to answer, but is the least expensive deployment of AI that provides a good return? What's the least expensive? Well, it's sort of, I guess it depends in part on what you define as AI. These automation tools, um, um, sometimes called robotic process automation, not terribly brainy compared to um, some forms of machine learning, but they're really good at automating, you know, structured information-based tasks, and they're not very expensive at all. In fact, there are some open source versions. Um, Microsoft now has um, a suite of tools called um, uh, um, Power Automate, for example, that come free with your, your um, enterprise um, uh, Windows 365, Office 365 kind of um, subscription. So, um, these are basically free and can automate lots of uh, um, business tasks. And increasingly, we can combine them with machine learning to make um, data-based um, predictive decisions. So um, I think that these tools are going to get cheaper and cheaper. A lot of the, um, the large language models, the generative AI models are open source now, um, meta uh, revealed, uh, released one that's open source called Llama. So I, I think in general, there are going to be plenty of things that we can do for free in this regard, but it still requires, you know, awareness of what's possible and um, the ability to, you know, learn from the use of new technologies at the individual and the organizational level. At what point will companies of 10 or less employees, which are probably 95 to 98% of the companies in the world can afford to implement AI in a way that drives sales or, and or reduces costs. 
Well, they can afford it now to some degree um, if they can afford, uh, um, you know, Salesforce.com for um, customer relationship management. Because what these um, transactional software companies are doing is building in AI. Salesforce calls it AI capabilities, Einstein. And just as a very simple example, it lets um, a salesperson see which of my customers are most likely to result in a sale. You know, I only have so much time to call on customers. Let's call on the ones who are most likely to buy. And it ranks um, customer um, uh, uh, priorities in terms of which ones are most likely to result in a, in a sale. And you have to pay, I think, 50 bucks a month per salesperson. Price may have changed recently, I'm not sure, but uh, it pays for itself really easily. Um, as I said, this uh, power um, automate and um, uh, some of the power BI tools at Microsoft effectively free if you can afford um, uh, uh, Office uh, 365 for your business. Um, so the software itself is less and less of an issue, I would say. The data that you have in your company is more of an issue. You need to you know, be thinking all the time about do I have good data on my customers and what they bought and my employees and so on. Otherwise, you're not gonna be able to use these tools to predict the best customers or predict who's um, going to leave your company as an employee soon or any of these kinds of things. Right now, there's a strike, and you know this better than I do because you have two kids out working out in Hollywood, your son and, and daughter-in-law, and I've got a daughter working out in Hollywood also. I, and there's a big strike that's been going on for most of the summer. One of the big concerns is AI taking over creative function. Do you feel that's a legitimate concern? Well, I do. When I first heard about the strike, I thought it was mostly about, you know, the uh, money that's being paid for these new streaming shows, which tends to be substantially less than people got in the old network shows. Um, uh, but now I think um, having talked to some people about it, including my um, kids, I do think that it is an issue. And I um, my sense is that the studios have pretty much relented on that that issue um, and they will not use generative AI to create um, new content without you know uh, human reviewing it. That's the smart thing to do because human review is going to make it a lot better anyway. Um, and Generative AI is going to produce, I think, some of the same low quality content that we've seen in Hollywood and, and Hollywood movies and on TV that we often often um, uh, get bored with. So we need humans to liven it up. And I think the humans and generative AI will be, be a very powerful combination if, if the contract allows for that combination. Um, a question from the audience. Content is king has been the mantra since Google has taken over the world of internet search. If AI can create all content, do you think Google has to change its approach for organizing information? I do. I think that um, uh, the search model that Google has so successfully um, exploited over the past several years is probably going to give way to 
a new model where we use generative AI to find out what we need. Or, you know, they're already doing the combination of search and generative AI with BARD. Um, but I think um, it's pretty widely believed that the model uh, for accessing information is going to change toward one that's um, more related to generative AI. Uh, you have a lot of use cases focused on supply and demand, automated customer contact, assortment, optimization. What businesses and industries is AI overkill and not worth the expense? Um, I don't know that there are too many where it's overkill, but I do think there are a lot of, of organizations that are getting excited about generative AI, and they should um, focus on the more traditional forms of it, the ones that um, analyze structured data. Maybe I was working with a, um, a telecom equipment company and they wanted to only talk about generative AI. And I said, you know, you have a ton of sensors and it's producing lots of content and you know, lots of structured data. You need to analyze that with traditional AI, not the, um, not the generative stuff. I think for most manufacturing oriented companies, it's going to be that traditional form of machine learning and generative AI, you know, they may be able to do some things on the margins, but it's not going to be the primary focus. But I don't think there are any industries for which AI across the board is going to be overkill. Uh, you write about autonomous driving vehicles. How far are we away from this being the standard in every car? A long way, I think. I think you and I will be dead, Mark, before that happens. Um, we've been expecting that since you know the 1980s or so. It's taken a really long time. Um, many of the people have in that industry have shifted to saying, "Well, you know, we're 80 percent there." Um, of course, the final 20 percent may take as long as the initial 80 yeah. percent, um, um, and that's. That 80%, you know, has taken uh, 40 or 50 years, so it's going to be a while. And there's the issue of um, the installed base. You know, people aren't going to, as soon as fully autonomous cars come out, we're not going to throw away our old car immediately and get one of these. So um, it's going to be, I would say, at least 20 or 30 years before the majority of cars on the road in sophisticated economies are fully autonomous. In the book, you note that financial services is a huge user of AI, which has been going on for years. Are there any future opportunities left in this space? Uh, yeah, I think a lot. Um, helping people understand what to do with their money, this sort of whole area of wealth management still could be a lot of improvements. Doing that at a low cost instead of you know charging 1% or 2% of your assets. Um, uh, I think just analyzing the data from people's financial lives and telling them how to, you know, you need to save more, you're spending too much on housing, et cetera, et cetera, I think could be a, a big step forward. Um, and then um, there are certainly things in the corporate finance area, too, that could be improved. They spend a ton of time doing different spreadsheets and so on, and a lot of that could be automated with, with generative AI. So here's the last question for you. Where do you see the best opportunities over the next year or two? Because if I said five to 10 years out, it might be too far to predict into the future. 
the biggest opportunities for using AI in the next couple of years? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, everybody needs to be experimenting with generative AI. It's not going to be long before um, it will be capable of serious production applications. My data, survey data suggests only 6% of large companies have done a production application now, but it's going to grow quite rapidly. I think managing a company's own content and knowledge with generative AI is going to be a very powerful thing. So companies should be exploring how to do that well. And I think, you know, still plenty of opportunities from traditional AI, the form of machine learning about, you know, what can we predict and so on. I was with the staffing industry um, uh, convention this week and tons of opportunities in terms of, of um, making predictions of which types of, of um, new employees will um, be most successful in a job, predicting absenteeism, um, composing job descriptions with generative AI. I mean, there's opportunity in almost every industry that has yet to be exploited. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. I look forward to your next book, having you back again. Uh, I so appreciate it. And again, it was a, a wonderful book and so timely for what we're talking about almost every day, right? Um, AI is on everybody's mind, including my 85-year-old mom. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been a pleasure talking with you about it. And I think you need to go to bed now, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.